This conversation was recorded before the beginning of the war in Ukraine. I dived into it and that's the moment when I shifted from more political journalism to more technology and innovation journalism. Young people today have no idea what this is because, you know, you just go to a store and buy your phone and you're online. We are just this small group of people, you know, we can't go around the world doing conferences. Hello and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Bruno Gassani, who is the global curator of TED. Now, you'll all have heard of TED and the conference talks and the TED Book Club, and Bruno joined TED in 2005, and he produced the first TED Global Conference that year in Oxford. He, before that, founded tech businesses, Uh, Before that, he read political science at university and he was a journalist. So there's lots of ground to cover with Bruno about all the exciting things that he's done. So, Bruno, welcome to the podcast. The first thing I always like to ask the people that joined us is is about their, their school and their university career. And I know that at university you read political science. So would you like to tell our listeners what drew you to studying political science? Thank you for having me, Mark. I didn't go directly to university, actually. I, I was born in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. And uh, at the time that there was no university, so you didn't have a, a, a choice uh, in terms of, of uh, studying that you either needed to go somewhere else in Switzerland, meaning studying in another language, German or French, or go to Italy and study under a different educational system. Uh, I worked for a couple of years before for a newspaper, and then I decided that I needed a better context, contextual knowledge uh, to continue my my, my job. And so I went to study at Geneva University in French, uh, and indeed I I studied political science. I was interested in in politics uh, as a way to understand the way we organize society. Uh, Politics and government is the way we organize society towards solving collective challenges and collective problems and towards living peacefully together. And uh, and so that was the reason why I, I chose to go there. I never really thought about using that to go into politics. Uh, I came already from a couple of years in a newspaper uh, as a junior reporter. And so my aim was really to be a better informed observer and, uh, and uh, an observer with a better background to a deeper background to uh, analyze what was happening in society and in politics. Can I ask you then, before university, what was it that made you want to be a journalist? Oh, that you never know where it comes from, you know, you just kind of uh, fall into it at some point. I, 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 I remember stealing the, the neighbor's newspaper when I was a kid to, to read the newspaper and, uh, and uh, from time to time. And, uh, and so, so I have no idea where they came from, but definitely I've always been attracted to uh, journalism and writing, and uh, I started in a very small 
local newspaper in southern Switzerland, uh, uh, which was really distributed in a, in a very in a very tiny uh, region. And so you end up doing all these small things that end up in the paper and talk only to a few people. Uh, but those are the people that you meet in the morning when you go to uh, to the pub. Uh, and uh, and uh, and so it's a very different relationship to readers than you have when you have in a, when you are in a big newspaper and you can write a big story about you know a distant country and you will never meet the people you're writing about and probably will never meet the people you're writing for. Uh, and uh, so that was a bit my school of journalism, uh, meeting the people I was writing about and I was writing for pretty much every day. You read political science, you had no intention of being a, a politician. What did you think you'd do? I thought I would go back to uh, some more ambitious form of journalism. Uh, and indeed, I, I, I went on to uh, go back to journalism and then start I started writing in French for a big uh, Swiss national magazine, and then I started writing for uh, other outlets around Europe, in Italy, and in France. And then I ended up writing for the uh, New York Times for three years. I wrote a, a column on internet and uh, and uh, uh, technology developments in Europe for for the Times for their website for about three years. Uh, and uh, so I shifted at a certain point from political journalist to technology journalist, but I never really focused on technology, I always focused on the political and social and cultural impacts of technology, because that has always been my interest. And then tell us about your um, startup in 95 when you became an internet provider <laughs> in Switzerland. So you're a, you're a journalist, you're writing about tech. And yeah, then, it's, then you it's one of, business. Exactly. No, it's one of, of, of those things. Uh, so in, in 94, I went to New York as a correspondent for the Swiss magazine I just uh, mentioned. And 94 was the year when the internet moved from, I'm really simplifying here, but being a sort of private infrastructure, which was accessible only for people in big corporations or in uh, public institutions to becoming a public infrastructure, you could finally, you know, set up your website and buy uh, access and uh, get your email address and these kind of things. So I wasn't in the US exactly at, at that moment when everybody started talking about it and the first uh, ambitious uh, websites started launching and I, I dived into it. And that's the moment when I shifted from more political journalism to more uh, technology innovation journalism. And when I came back, uh, I, I somehow I kind of knew more about that than most or all of my colleagues in Switzerland. And so I started on one end uh, developing the first website, the first news website in Switzerland for the magazine. And on the other, I teamed up with a, a few friends and we decided to start uh, our own internet provider, uh, which was at the time, right now, young people today have no idea what this is because you know you just go to a store and buy your phone and you're online. But uh, at the time, in order to get online, you needed to purchase access and then to purchase a device that would connect your computer to that phone line that gave you access, which was called a modem. And, uh, and so and so we had to set up a wall infrastructure to make sure that people in the region where we were living could uh, access without having to pay long distance calls and these kind of things, which is really prehistoric now that I hear myself telling about it. Yeah, no, well, well, I remember it well, and, and you used to get that awful sort of 
noise where it when it connected to the modem. Exactly, exactly, yes. There wasn't a telephone noise, which yeah. people won't remember now. So essentially, we set up this company that uh, that uh, gave people the possibility to connect to the internet, browse the web, have their own email address, create their own website, uh, we serviced companies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes. So, so what? So, was that fun? Was that hard work? Did you enjoy being an entrepreneur? Well, no, I, 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 I loved it. You know, as a technology journalist, you are you are always surrounded by by people with entrepreneurial ideas and by entrepreneurs who actually turn those ideas into a company or into a product and by people chasing the next deal and uh, and so on. So uh, I, I wouldn't call that company a startup uh, in the sense that it was not, you know, a, 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 an innovative company that would, you know, launch a new product or, or so. It was more of a service company that uh, would extend to a different geography, something that existed already elsewhere. Uh, and uh, uh, and also, it was not meant to be uh, you know fast growing and endlessly growing because we were in a small region of Switzerland, and so that was our market. Uh, but we did it because we were interested in the technology because we wanted to explore what this thing can actually do, and and we had a sense that the, the internet would become a big item in our lives and uh, in 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 our economies. Uh, but it was just the very beginning at the time, and uh, you know, the, where I remember writing a column uh, every week for the magazine, and they would mention every week three or four or five new websites around the world that were significant. And uh, and now when I go back and look at those things, it was kind of oh, did we think that we can actually track weekly all the developments happening on the web? But at the time we could, at the time there were, you know, a few thousand websites. If something interesting popped up in an obscure place in Canada, we would know about it. Uh, now it's just impossible to track every 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 development. Uh, and it's been this way for a long time. So it was really a, a different pioneering time, but it was a time of uh, learning by experimenting. So we were ourselves learning what this thing could do by implementing it for other people and making sure it would work for other people. And, and then um, you, you took another step. Uh, you went to the, um, the World Economic uh, Forum um, as um, the head of online strategy. So how did you do that? Because you seem to be sort of moving all the time all and to different things. Yeah, you know, Mark, I, I know this podcast is about thinking about career and these things, but I never really thought about career uh, uh, at all. And, and I think if you take my wall, uh, CV, my whole uh, trajectory, it's exactly the example of what happens when you don't think in terms of career, when you don't think in, term, don't think in terms of you know, the move after the next. You just try to make sure that the next move, if it comes, is interesting, is, is challenging, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, something you really want to devote yourself, yourself to. Uh, and, and, and if this is what you do, then you end up uh, zigzagging a bit, so you go from 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 one thing to something that looks a bit like it's it's opposite, and uh, and so, and and uh, uh, so I, I I left journalism and I went to work for the World Economic Forum, which is the organization that puts up the Davos meeting every every year, uh, and uh, because they had created this new uh, role as head of uh, online strategy at the time was the end of the nineties, uh, of course. By then, everybody, including them, had a website, etc. But the question was, how do we bring 
the benefits of digital technology into the functioning of the organization, into the functioning of the meeting itself, into the hands of the people participating in the uh, meeting. So uh, we worked a lot on that. We worked a lot on the website. We worked, we worked on things that back then turned out to be technologically impossible. And today is exactly what you and I are doing now, meaning call over Zoom. Literally, in I think 1999, we developed this project called the World Electronic Community. Welcome without the E at the end. Uh, and uh, the notion was that the members of the World Economic Forum community could actually join in calls like the ones that we are all accustomed to do on Zoom today, exactly the same, uh, to discuss matters of uh, importance, uh, either because it was an urgency, let's assume a country has a moment of crisis and uh, uh, um, uh, representative from international organizations and other people that, that uh, are relevant may jump on a discussion and the forum could facilitate that through that infrastructure which didn't exist uh, or, or other similar situations. And we tried to make that work and at the time just the technology was not there. There was no video streaming, it would come five or six years later uh, no, when essentially it became popular when YouTube launched. Uh, there was no sufficient broadband, so computers had to be connected directly into physical lines to make that happen. The interface was really complicated. So the idea was essentially we, we, we dreamed Zoom and we didn't have the technology to make it happen because we were 20 years too early. So we, we worked on this kind of things there. But you're clearly a visionary. <laughs> no, no, that was not my idea. It was, it was Klaus Schwab's idea, the founder of, of, the, of the forum, was in charge of trying to turn it into reality. So. And, and then um, and then after you did that, you, you, you then did another startup. Yeah, we did another another company which uh, is still is still exists and still works across uh, uh, Europe, Southern Europe and, and the Middle East and uh, uh, and does web design essentially and uh, special software development for companies. So nothing that you would take to 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 the stock market and nothing that you would uh, you know consider a competitor to any one of the big out there. Tell us then, how you've moved from that to go to TED in 2005. So I, I did all of what you, you uh, described. And then I decided that I needed to take some time off. And so I applied for a fellowship at Stanford University at the Department of Communication. I, I got in. I spent a year there uh, browsing around the university, writing some things, doing some research, attending classes, participating in the activities of the fellowship group, uh, the Knight Fellowship, uh, it's called, still, still today. And uh, then when that year ended, I didn't want to come back immediately. And so I tried to find another fellowship, which I did at the, at the Institute of International Studies and stayed for another six months. And somehow towards the end of that, when I really had to come back because my visa was expiring, et cetera, I, I bumped into, into TED. I didn't know much about it. I knew it existed. But at the time, so we're talking about uh, fall 2004, TED was uh, an organization that organized one conference a year in Monterey, California. Uh, didn't have any video online. So what people know today as TED Talks available on TED.com or on YouTube or elsewhere didn't exist. 
And that was basically it. There were a couple of other small activities here and there, but uh, unless you were one of the 1,000 lucky few uh, who could go to the conference every year in California, you would not have access to the, uh, the talks by the TED speakers and the discussions happening there and so on. So I, I heard about it through a couple of journalist friends and so on. And then suddenly a friend of mine sends me, and I'm still at Stanford, a friend of mine sends me um, a message saying, oh, look, Ted is opening up uh, some activities in Europe. Why don't you take a look at it? And, uh, and indeed, Ted has just announced that they were planning to do the first conference in Europe, in Oxford, in 2005, in July 2005, called Ted Global. And, uh, and they got into a discussion with Chris Anderson, the current head of Ted. Uh, and, uh, and somehow we clicked. And, uh, and he offered me, after several rounds of discussion, he offered me to essentially uh, produce that conference and join the team and, 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 and be the one who put together the conference in, uh, in Oxford, which I did. So that was my first uh, activity at, at, uh, at TED. So by the end of 2005, we were an organization with two conferences, one in Europe and one in the US. Uh, another um, initiative, which was called the TED Prize, which was an award. And, uh, and, and then we went into 2006 with a lot of thinking about how to disseminate the knowledge that comes out of TED conferences to the world. And that's when we started publishing talks online, right? We published first a, a small selection of five just to test the water, uh, the waters, and and uh, the reactions were astonishingly positive. Uh, not only because of the quality of the talks, but uh, you know we got a lot of that. We got a lot of uh, this is great and so on. And I think we also hit a serendipitously we hit a very sweet spot because we came into that literally a few months after YouTube launched, which means that YouTube was growing popularity. Uh, streaming video made video accessible to many. Broadband made streaming video possible because it was getting uh, uh, really widespread. And there, was, there wasn't much interesting content and so we came in with the first TED Talks and suddenly we became this thing. So it's, it's, it's pure happenstance, right? And we were not the only ones, but we kind of got lucky in terms of, of timing in a way because of that conjunction of factors. Uh, and, uh, and then in 2006, we launched, uh, later in 2006, we launched the website and plenty of other uh, uh, ways to access TED Talks. And that has totally changed the nature of what TED is because uh, right now we are a big global platform, no longer just a conference organizer. So. And, and so just talk us through that journey. Um, yeah. So you joined 17 years ago, yeah. which is the longest you've worked anywhere by a long yeah. time. Um, <laughs> so, so just take us through your, your personal career development with Ted over that time and how technology may or may not change things. And just, just the growth of the company from being, as you said, when you joined, you know, two conferences. Yeah to now being this massive global phenomena. I mean, that's that's quite a thing. So, so just sort of share with us what that journey has been like. Uh, look, there, there, are, there are a few, a few things that can go into, into the answer and then you can mix them up in different ways. But uh, so when, when I joined, we were really a handful of people and, uh, and we were 
mostly preoccupied with uh, creating a, a great learning experience for those who came to our conferences, right? But it was uh, quite quite soon afterwards we, we started really thinking about can we open up this to the rest of the world and how should we do that? At the beginning, we looked at you know possibilities like should we should we create a TED television show? And we did approach a couple of uh, television networks, and they turned us down and they said, oh, you know one person standing up and talking is not really sexy for television, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, television wasn't at the time ago. Uh, now everybody's doing that on television, but it's a different different time. Uh, and so we looked at uh, uh, disseminating those online. We published the first ones, the reactions were really good. And so we decided to just dive uh, into, into that. Now, the question that comes up when you try, when you decide to do that is the same question that every other publisher of content of any kind, newspaper publishers and, uh, and uh, music publishers uh, have had to ask themselves uh, at a certain point when, because uh, the question is, if I give away my content for free online, will people still come to my paid things for us where the conferences, right? So people come to the conferences, the conferences fund the organization because that's the way at the time we generated our revenue. Uh, if we give the world access to uh, to the talks for free, why would people come and pay for coming to the conference? And so we would break our business model, and 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 so. And then we, dis we so we spoke with some people in the in the community. We 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 really took a lot of advice, and at the end we decided to to go ahead and uh, and open it up. Open it up because the sense of the mission about disseminating ideas was stronger than uh, the risk we were we were taking. Turns out that uh, more people started to ask to come to the conferences. Turns out that because people suddenly discovered Ted who did not know Ted before, uh, and uh, and so uh, turns out that suddenly it became slightly easier to attract speakers because they could see what this is about. Uh, just by watching a video or two, and uh, and so on. So that that really changed up significantly the way we we did things. And then around that, so around the double pole of the conferences and the digital content, the website, we started building a big platform for spreading ideas that has now I don't know several dozen pieces, uh, and a lot of them have come out from responding to the demand from our community, from the people watching the talks and for the people involved with, with, with that. Uh, I mentioned before that when we posted the first talks, we got a lot of positive reaction. This is great. But we also got another kind of reaction, which was also positive, but said, this is great. We need something like TED in our city. Why don't you come to Barcelona and, and organize a TED conference in Barcelona? And uh, and we were like, we can't. We are just this small group of people. You know, we can't go around the world doing conferences uh, everywhere. And, and for a while, our answer was that we can't, we can't, we can't. But the demand kept coming. And so saying no was not satisfying. And then finally, we hit on a different answer. And the different answer was, well, we can't, but you can if you agree to take a license to organize a TED like event. The license is free, you don't have to pay any money, but the license is a contract. So you need to agree and commit to stick to some specific rules about how we're gonna organize that and, uh, and so on. And that was the, the, the birth of our TEDx uh, initiative, which is 
a model where local groups of volunteers can organize TED-inspired uh, events under the brand TEDx plus the name of the city, TEDx London, for example, and, uh, and, uh, and do that independently from, from us, but sticking to specific rules, so to a framework to make that event as close as possible to what it would be if we were doing it. And, uh, and we launched it in 2009, and, uh, uh, and these are figures, pre-pandemic figures, so 2019. In 2019, we had 3,800 TEDx events around the world. So just to tell you how, how strong that has grown. But at the beginning, it was really an attempt at answering the demands coming from the, uh, the community. And, uh, and, and we did similar things when we launched our education initiative. We did similar things when so TED-Ed. We did similar things when uh, we launched the, the project I'm, I'm currently leading for TED, which is TED Countdown, our climate initiative, uh, which was about turning a discussion about ideas into implementation and into action and into real real impact and finding ways to do to do that and so on. So now when you look at the TED platform, all of it contributes to the idea and the mission of spreading knowledge as freely and openly as possible. But it's made of many different pieces, made of all I've said before, plus podcasts. We have a dozen or more podcasts under the TED Audio Collective, plus uh, 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 special video series on every social media you can imagine. A, a, a very strong presence on social media, everything from LinkedIn to TikTok, so from professional to, to, to uh, more entertainment, uh, etc. Uh, plus the TEDx network, plus a fellowship, plus a prize called the Audacious Prize, and and then so all these pieces seem kind of disconnected, but the reality is they all built towards this notion of our job as the TED Foundation is to spread the knowledge as broadly and openly and accessibly as possible. And so tell us what what's next. I mean, you you clearly seem uh, after seventeen years still engaged and excited about what you've built and I mean it, it is remarkable but what's next what do you see in in this decade well now we need to ask ourselves a lot of not us Ted only but as a, as a society a lot of questions about uh the 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 current moment of course because it's a moment of uh, real risk and uh and and challenges right of course the the front page one is uh climate change which is serious which is here which is not gonna leave us uh and which we need to confront uh with with uh, with commitment and ambition uh but there are many other uh big challenges global and regional and national and even personal that we need to 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 confront anything from uh the breakdown of public discourse and the incapacity to overcome uh polarization for example or uh the the fast spread of fake news and how those are uh manipulating the the way people uh try to find common solutions or make it impossible to find common common solutions uh the destabilization of the global uh order and so how do we rebuild another one or how do we repair the one we have but probably we need to rebuild a new one uh, that takes into account the new reality of the world and not just the post-World War II reality of the world. Uh, racial justice and, and, and climate justice, uh, uh, social and economic uh, inequality and inequity, and so on. So we need to ask ourselves a lot of questions, and uh, we are doing that using the TED tools, which is 
For example, when it comes to climate, we launched two years and a half ago an initiative called Countdown, which is countdown to 2030 and to 2050, which are the two days by which we need to, you know, cut our emissions of greenhouse gases by half and then as close as possible to, to, to zero. And the idea there is that we use everything we can with our tools and the tools of our partners at uh, uh, Leaders Quest. Uh, so convening, creating networks, uh, uh, disseminating, identifying, disseminating, and highlighting uh, ideas, propelling solutions, and so on. And everything is really targeted towards where are the solutions. We have we have we are done describing the problem. We really want to target where are the solutions. So that's one project, which is a big chunk of TED right now uh, that that we are really pushing uh, ambitiously. Uh, but the other questions are also on on on, on the ground. At the, at the upcoming conference in uh, in Vancouver, which is uh, in April, uh, we want to discuss things like artificial intelligence, for example, uh, which is another big question that collectively we need to to confront uh, and not leave that in the hands of some big companies in in in, in the US and in China to to define and to decide. So that's where your um link back to your degree in political science becomes really yeah, well, interesting. You know, by, by, by now I have a degree in political science, which I never really used, but uh, it's useful anyway. And then I have, uh, you know, 20 years experience in dealing with technology and innovation and digital platforms and so on. And, and now for the first several years, I've worked uh, uh, hard on climate. And so there's a lot of overlap uh, among, among, among between those, those, those things. And, uh, that gives me, I don't know, I assume it gives me an interesting profile, but uh, again, to go back to the point before, it's not a profile that's sellable uh, in, a, in a career kind of kind of approach. I I, I, I just think that is, it gives me an interesting perspective on things, that's it. And, and, and you've been at the heart of, of the internet and its development. When you look at it now, Bruno, do you think to yourself, it's a force for good? Or do you think it's a force for for bad? Is it something we should be troubled about? I don't know exactly how to answer your question, so I'm going to give you two answers. Uh, the, the first one is, I used to be uh, very bullish, very enthusiastic about the internet. And uh, to the point that in Switzerland and some parts of Europe back in the 90s, I was considered like an internet evangelist and, uh, and, and so. Uh, and I really think that uh, there was a moment there where we could have seized this technology to, and it's a bit cheesy to say like this, but allow me to, to kind of simplify down to this formula to make the world a better place for everybody. Uh, and, uh, and we didn't. And we didn't because uh, the internet has essentially been seized by and large by uh, very strong commercial interests, uh, those of the big companies, those of the investors behind the big companies uh, and, and others. And, uh, and the benefits of the internet have accrued mostly to a small portion of people and a small portion of uh, uh, companies. Uh, so right now I come down and, 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 and this has had cascading negative effects. It has had, you know, the, the evident negative effects we see, uh, which are polarization, for example, because of fake news, because they serve better the interests of uh, uh, the algorithms that run social media and that keep people uh, glued to the screens. Uh, 
uh, and so the you know, the other big cost is the cost to our personal and collective uh, uh, um, private sphere with the the extraction of all of the totality of our knowledge and experience in the form of data uh, and for private use. So the privatization of your data track and my data track, uh, which we don't own, somebody in Silicon Valley now owns, uh, and, uh, and so on. So I come down rather to on the side right now of the, the net net is rather negative. But uh, the question is, and this is the second answer, the question is, uh, it's not the internet per se that has created the situation. There is a, there is a, when we think about technology, there is a double trajectory, right? There is a, a very, there are the core elements of it that are almost inevitable, meaning the, the, the development of something like the internet, meaning a system that interconnects people and that is not separate into different gardens and different walls. Uh, 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 places but interconnects potentially everybody is kind of an inevitability of technological development. What's not inevitable is the kind of elements that we build on top of it to use it to the benefit of everybody or to the benefit of the few, right? So to give an example that maybe is more understandable, I think it was inevitable that at some point we would all have a cell phone in our pockets so that that technology would drive us in the direction where an, a, a means of intercommunication of communication with somebody else would no longer be attached to a wall but so fixed in a place but would come with us right what was not even inevitable was that the shape of the device would be the shape of the devices we have today. We could have chosen 15 years ago, Steve Jobs could have chosen a completely different shape. I'm not talking about the physical shape, I'm talking about what the machine does, how it is structured, how it, is, how it behaves to control us and to make us do things in a certain way and so on. They could have chosen a completely different thing. Uh, and, and so a lot of those choices were actually made to the benefit of the few and, and to the detriment of the many and that I don't like. So that's why I think that we came down yeah. come down you, rather on the net negative at this point. And, and do you feel similarly concerned about AI? You talked yes. about that being a focus for Ted. So so yeah. just share a little of, of your thinking and Ted's thinking about AI. Well this is more my thinking than Ted's thinking. So uh, uh, allow me to say that. But uh, uh, AI is a very powerful tool that uh, that may really bring incredible benefits to humanity if we do things right. Uh, but AI also has uh, some significant basic flaws that we need to take care of. First of all, there is no AI without data. AI depends on data. Uh, and so it's another incentive to gather a mass and own as much data as possible. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that goes counter every possible just thinking about privacy and about uh, the right of everybody to own their own data and these kind of things. That's one, one issue. So how do we manage collectively? How would we define where are the limits about data collection? Who owns the data? Uh, how can they be manipulated or used and, or not? 
you know, how can they be uh, checked for accuracy? And if they're not, how do we correct them? And so, so there's a whole data chapter about AI. Then there is a whole bias chapter about AI, uh, which is the fact that the data on which AI is based are all data about something that happened in the past, maybe just one second ago, but in the past, right? Which means that every bias that built into those data, that data is going to be replicated in whatever uh, uh, is AI, AI systems are going are gonna, to uh, learn to work uh, with. And we have seen this over and over, biases in when AI systems are applied for uh, things like uh, hiring, selecting candidates, for example, or, or, or so. Uh, then there is a, a, a third chapter, which has to do with uh, who owns the systems, right? So there is, a, there is a, a logic of AI, which is essentially, is not only exponential, but is a sort of escape velocity kind of, kind of logic. At some point, some AI system is going to be so powerful that any other system behind it will not be able to reach him anymore, right? It's going to be self-generating, self-perpetuating, self-reprogramming, et cetera, et cetera, and self-enhancing. And, self -enhancing. and uh, if we get to that point and we don't have clear, shared, agreed upon rules about who controls this, then it becomes really, really dangerous. Uh, so those are just, I'm, I'm really skimming the surface here, right? To be, to be, to be simple and, and short, but uh, those are three other things that, uh, that worry me about AI. So let's um, think about uh, some uplifting and happy things <laughs> finish our, our chat. But I mean, it's wonderful that Ted is drawing out these issues. I mean, it's, you know, and sharing that information globally and not in the way of fake news, but you know, here are the big issues facing us, and let's share the information. So, so yeah. I just want to talk about um, some of the talks, and I know that you've um, you've hosted the Pope, you've had our Prince William, you've just had the most amazing speakers. Just tell us for for you, who who've been your favourite speakers and why? You know, I I get this question a lot, and it's very difficult to pick because the favourite speaker is always the one you're working with to prepare the next talk, right? Uh, because you're discovering new things and uh, learning new things and helping shape a story then, that may then bring insight and, and inspiration to, to, to somebody else and, and so on. So that's really the, the, the current favorite, favorite speaker in a way. But uh, one, one common situation is that very often the most amazing talks don't come from people who are already famous. They come from people that you have never heard of and probably nobody knows about except in their field or in their country. Uh, but, uh, you know, and suddenly they appear on this big stage and, and they change your mind because they put a different framework on things and, and, uh, and they open up a new, you know, line of inquiry for that connects with something that you were thinking about and but you didn't know the words to say it or whatever. And, uh, and so, and, and we've seen that very often. And there are TED speakers who right now are kind of, you know, I wouldn't say household names because we are this tiny entity in the world, but uh, you know, whose talk has been seen 10, 10 million times, 20 million times, 30 million times. And, uh, and, 
and before coming to that stage uh nobody really knew them outside of their of their circle or field of activity or or specialty or or, or so so that's one of the interesting uh phenomena and then yeah then there are the famous people pope francis and prince william and and uh, and others uh and and we're very happy to work with them towards you know creating the kind of talk that we do at ted which is you know short and is all structured around a single idea and and uh, and so on um, but those are not the the main element of what we do really the main element of what we do is trying to go and find those voices that are net contributors to something to increasing the collective knowledge uh, uh, so they bring something new either because it's a scientific discovery or is a new perspective on things or is a, a, an experience that can help us understand other things uh, and so on. And are you, are you going to give us one that you listen to? One that you would <laughs> say uh, over the last 17 years? No, I'm a listen, listen, I think that if there is a talk that everybody should really listen to, uh, independently of whether they are Catholic or not, because it really transcends the boundaries, he is the second talk by Pope Francis. Uh, he gave two TED talks, uh, and uh, in 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 at the distance of three or four years, I think uh, the last one was in October 2020. It's about climate, but it's really about us and our place uh, on the planet. And uh, uh, you know, don't imagine that because he's the Pope, this is a preach or anything else. It's really a TED talk. There is nothing uh, that would would signal uh, uh, that this comes from. The head of the Catholic Church, if you didn't know that he is the head of the Catholic Church, is a very thoughtful, incredibly deep and very important talk. Great. Well, it's clear for all of our listeners to see that you've had a very happy working life. You've um, indulged you. your passions, done the things that have given you huge satisfaction and uh, uh, with Ted done the most incredible things for, for the planet. So uh, thank you for all of that. Uh, grazie. Uh, you've been a, a wonderful guest. Uh, you are molto gentili. Uh, um, Thank you, Mark. Pleasure. Was great success going forward. Thank you, and goodbye to everyone. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co, where you can find out how you can get happier at work. <laughs> <laughs>